A inteligência artificial faz parte uh, da componente e do coração deste uh, jogo de Detroit Become Human. Uh, e nós tivemos o, o prazer enorme de falar com Sheila Heyman, uh, ela que é uma documentarista uh, premiada internacionalmente uh, e que tem vindo a estudar ao longo das últimas décadas um, a evolução da inteligência artificial um, até onde é que a parte da robótica e dos humanos se vão cruzar no futuro? Qual é essa evolução da tecnologia? Eu estive à conversa com ela aqui em Detroit e foi uma conversa fantástica. Vejam então. Acho que estamos em um mundo em que nós persuaded que o progresso é a mesma coisa como máquinas. Machines started off, you know, several hundred years ago, as we know. And the problem with machines is that they are very rule-bound and that they are very constricting and that they are very difficult to resist. And so I think what people feel is that they are more and more and more in the grip of a technology and a technological culture which is somehow inescapable and which is surrounding them and reducing more and more their individual agency as human beings. You know, we have been turned into creatures who have to watch the clock. There wasn't even synchronization of clocks until 150 years ago. We've been turned into people who have to come and go when the machine says we should come and go. We have to answer things in a particular way. We have to speak and, in, and interact in a particular way in order to be understood. And, and the definition Everything has been monetized, you know, even your social life is monetized now. It's not any longer something that you do for fun, it's something that you can Instagram and be approved for, something that you can get a like for on Facebook. So every aspect of our life has somehow been subordinated to and corralled and constricted by this technology. And I personally, one of my missions is to actually challenge that and say we should have a different relationship with the machines in which the technology is there to serve a better human life and the machines aren't there to serve the technology and unfortunately one of the major reasons why we don't have that is because the people who are controlling the technology are also controlling this conversation of public life they're also controlling what we think and what we feel through social media and through Google and through these other you know all the, all the companies the tech companies they're both developing the technology and they're controlling the conversation and the consequence of that is that we no longer understand that there is an alternative to that definition of progress and that we as humans with all our extraordinary capabilities are able to and should assert our own humanity and rebalance that relationship so the machines are serving humanity rather than the other way around and we're not just there to become more profit for the tech barons in Silicon Valley. No, I mean I think first of all I think we're much more likely to be undone by global warming or by nuclear war or by some other thing than we are by the ineluctable advance of technology but I think and I hope that there will be, that there is beginning already to be a backlash against this. You know, when the robber barons, as they are called, first built the railways in America and trampled and laid waste large swathes of the countryside, when people first started monopolizing certain industries, and there was enormous um, uh, poverty as a result. So I'll start again with that. <clears throat> you can look at the analogy of the beginnings of, you know, industrial capitalism in, in America, 150 years ago or so, there were these unbridled capitalist 
you know, robber barons, you call them, because that's what they were. They were taking everything that they wanted, giving nothing in return, leaving people miserable and, and hopeless as a result. And people said, this is enough. We don't want this. This isn't the way that we want humanity to live. And I think it's, uh, we're now at a moment where we have to say the same thing with this technology. Technology is not the same as progress. We are not made happier by it. What actually makes you happy? All sorts of other things, but not more machines in your life. And luckily, people are beginning to realize that, and they're starting to say, let's find some different things that we will prioritize in our development. I just hope that, that will happen soon enough and enough, widespread enough. I don't think that we're, I mean, I made a film uh, uh, about 25 years ago called The Electronic Frontier for the BBC, and it had the first email, the first computer in your pocket, the first social media, the first search engines, the first online community, the first email, which as I, at that point was at Microsoft. So it had all these first things. But the one thing it didn't foresee was that there would be too much information and also that it would be used for putting pictures of cats up on YouTube, you know? So <laughs> there's always one thing that you don't think of that comes and sort of hits you on the back of the neck. I mean, who would have thought that cat videos would become this thing that's now sort of absolutely everywhere and that everybody understands and nobody can resist? So I, I, think, um, I think there's always going to be surprise because I think the great thing about human culture is that it's so complicated um, and therefore so non-linear and so unpredictable that it will always throw up things that you're not expecting. Some things are linear, but thank God many things are not. I think technology has its own vector, and I think that's what we've seen. It's about profit, it's about automation, you know, more automation, and it's about speed. Those are the vectors of technology. I think the forms that technology takes in some cases can be quite creative, but I don't think that you could say that creativity is what's driving the direction of travel, unfortunately. So what, one of the first films that I made on this subject was, um, was called The Short History of the Future, and that's exactly what it was. It was looking at going back and saying, where do these images of the future that we all share come from? You know, the, the personal helicopter that whizzes us around, you know, the, the silver all-in-one bodysuit, the dome over the sky, the cars driving themselves along motorways in all directions. You know, in that film, there was something which was, in essence, like FaceTime, and that film was made in 1936. There was instant food. You know, so these, these dreams of you know, automation and, and instantaneous everything are very, very ancient ones and in some cases 100 years old. And what's happened is that people have grown up seeing these things and thinking, oh, I'd like that, I'm going to make that happen. So actually, the visionary dreams have not changed very much. The same kinds of vision have been around for about 100 years and people have been working and working and working towards making them happen. And one by one, they are happening. Personal helicopters haven't happened yet, but that's partly because the um, mechanics of helicopters are, are make them inherently very unstable and dangerous. But a lot of the other things have come into being, but it's not an accident. It's because people, little boys watching those things thought, that's cool, I'm going to make that happen. I think the thing that's really clever about this game is that in playing it, you have to make choices, and those choices force you to ask ethical questions about your relationship with the world and your relationship with machines. I think it's an incredibly clever and inventive and very, very thoughtful and very detailed and subtle uh, game. And I think that it will definitely make everybody who plays it think about these things in ways that they should think about it. And it's also really important for that generation because, you know, people my age can remember a time before the internet uh, uh, 
time before, all sorts of things, in fact. But people of the millennial age cannot remember it. They have no concept of what the world could be when you're actually doing things with your hands rather than just having a machine do them. When you're actually, you know, one very simple example, up until a very few years ago, children at school would play games in the playground and they would clap hands and they would sing songs and they would tell rhymes to each other and these games some of them were hundreds of years old and they'd been handed down from generation to generation and they had stories embedded in them but what they also did was they taught children to to relate to each other now the science has proved that when children have played a game and sung a song together they actually play more cooperatively together afterwards now that's something that sort of completely disappeared almost overnight um, and so I think it's really important to actually start telling people of that age, look, there has been different worlds, and it wasn't just you know, the good old days, but there are many other ways that you can live which have advantages. So I think it's a really good thing that this, that this game exists. VR, I don't know, I think again, you know, there are good and bad uses for VR and, and for AR, and I think it, I would always be more keen on the ones that actually bring people to a greater awareness of the world rather than take them away from it. VR has been called the empathy machine because people have used it to try and put you in the shoes of another person. And I think it can do that. It can't do it completely, but it can do it to some extent. It can make you understand what it's like to be a person with a, a, you know, a, a life-threatening disease, or it can make you understand what's, what it's like to be a rhinoceros with a whole bunch of poachers coming up at you. So I think if these technologies, like any technology, can be used for good or ill, and it has, to me, as long as it's used to make humanity more aware, more humane, more empathetic, then it's a good thing. I think it should. I think the more you find out about how incredibly stupid and limited machines are, the more amazed you are by humanity. And, and the thing that I'm doing with this work, I'm looking at new science, and it's absolutely extraordinary, the stuff that's being found out. You know, the mirror neuron stuff, for instance, which came out actually probably nearly 20 years ago now. We have a set of neurons in our brain whose only purpose is to fire up. It fires the motor cortex. When you see somebody doing something, a little bit of your brain reacts as though you're doing it as well. There's another signal that comes in the opposite direction to stop you actually taking the action. But what's the reason for that? The reason for that is so that we can understand what it's like to be another person. Okay, another thing. When a man smells the tears of a woman, a woman he doesn't know, some complete stranger, his testosterone levels drop and his oxytocin levels rise. He becomes more sympathetic and less aggressive. The thing I was talking about with the touch receptors, different receptors for different ways of being touched, traveling by a different path to a different part of your brain to make you feel differently about the person who's touching you. You know, humanity is an absolutely extraordinary thing. We are absolutely unique. We have all kinds of amazing capabilities. We can navigate, you know, by the stars or we can navigate by the shape of sand if we allow ourselves to understand those capabilities and to develop them and I think we simply have a job to do to remind ourselves of the amazing thing it is to be a human you know things like catching a ball okay I've been trying for about the last month to understand the mathematics of catching a ball because there's a man who's a psychology professor at Oxford who wrote a paper about how you catch a ball it's unbelievably difficult to work it out mathematically people do it without even thinking because we've learned to do it and it turns out that in order to make an algorithm for catching a ball you have to make a synthetic body for it to happen in you cannot learn to do that without having some kind of embodiment so all of these things say to me you know humans are fantastic you know let's celebrate the fact that humans are fantastic let's not ask what 
we're for in some philosophical sense. We're obviously here to leave the world better than we found it and to have as much fun as we can along the way. Uh, well, I've, I've got to turn this into a film or a series of films or whatever it is, this work I've been doing for a long, long time. Um, and uh, yeah, um, I think going back and playing with my family probably.